Hello, Double X listeners, and welcome to this special podcast. I'm Julia Turner, Editor-in-Chief of Slate. In recent weeks, more than 75 women have come forward to accuse movie producer Harvey Weinstein of sexual harassment and assault. The stories that Weinstein's accusers tell of uncomfortable encounters in hotel rooms, of ostensible business meetings interrupted by requests to give him a massage, to watch him shower, to disrobe, and sometimes of sexual violence, including rape, echo each other in striking ways. In many cases, these women also describe having spent decades feeling isolated, alone, and ashamed of their brushes with Weinstein. But they were far from alone. And so we invited three of these women, actress Alice Evans, actress Catherine Kendall, and professor of psychology Tommy Ann Roberts, to speak with each other about their experiences. In an honest and emotional conversation taped in Los Angeles on Thursday, November 16th, they described what happened to them and how they're feeling now about the cascade of Weinstein stories and allegations against other powerful men that have emerged. Before we bring you that conversation, I'll note that Weinstein has been fired from the Weinstein Company and has resigned from the company's board. Through a spokesperson, he has denied all allegations of non-consensual sex and of retaliation against women who rebuffed him or complained about his behavior. Now, that conversation. My guests today include Alice Evans, an actress who has appeared on The Vampire Diaries and Lost. Thanks for joining me, Alice. Thank you. And also here in the studio with me is Catherine Kendall, a photographer and actress perhaps best known for her role in the film Swingers. Thanks for being here today, Catherine. Thank you. And joining us by Skype from Colorado is Tommy Ann Roberts, a professor of psychology at Colorado College. Welcome, Tommy Ann. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. The Weinstein encounters you three have described took place in three different decades, which strikes me as a testament to the immense scope of what we've learned about Weinstein's behavior over decades uh, in the 80s, the 90s, and the early aughts. Tommy Ann, I'd like to start with your story. Can you describe how and when you met Harvey Weinstein and what happened? I was um, in between my junior and senior year in college, and a number of my college friends and I uh, lived in New York that summer doing things like internships. Uh, And I had been considering both a theater major and a psychology major actually at Smith College. And so that summer was an opportunity for me to do some auditions uh, for commercials get some headshots, things like that. I was working at a restaurant and it was at this restaurant that I met the Weinstein brothers who introduced themselves to me as uh, a a production company. I remember learning about how they named their company Miramax after their parents. Uh, And uh, before I knew it, Harvey had indicated, you know, when I said that I was an aspiring actress, that uh, they were now going to be doing their first movie that they would be directing. They had been, I think, prior to that, importing foreign movies. And so that was very exciting, as you might imagine. And uh, for the rest of the summer, I would receive scripts and updates about the movie. I remember going to the offices at one time. uh, And then I was invited to an apartment. I I presumed that other people involved with the movie would be at this evening event, because why would I be invited to something in the evening? And I arrived at this apartment to find Harvey. Uh, He called me down the hall. He was in the bathtub. Uh, And I stood there frozen, of course. I've since wondered, you know, why would something like that be so frightening? You know, Here's a man in a bathtub. There's the surprise it, of it. I mean. Exactly. Exactly. And and sort of, I don't know, the temerity of him to think, I'm just going to present myself to you this, in this way. Uh, and, you know, knowing that that would be very off-putting to me, he tried to calm me down uh, and say, you know, that nakedness was something that I needed to be comfortable with. Would I please take my top off? Because surely the movie would have some nudity scenes and and I needed to show him that I was comfortable with that, uh, which, of course, I wasn't. What did you say? And, well, I, I, I know I wish I could remember my exact words. It was such a flooding experience. But I do know and I'm ashamed to say that I I. I was not aggressive in any way. I was terribly frightened of poking this bear. So I, I very politely excused myself. And I, I said, well, I, I, I wasn't sure that I was actually really cut out for this kind of thing. 
uh, and please, you know, accept my apologies, but no, thank you. And exited. How did you feel afterward? I, I remember it was in the days long before cell phones. I remember I went to a pay phone and I called my, the apartment uh, where my boyfriend was uh, and said, wow, wait till you hear what it just happened to me. I, I think what I felt was uh, speechless and also, well, frankly, I felt ashamed. I thought, you know, what did I think was going to happen reaching for something like a movie? I, I was a, I was a college kid. This was obviously way out of my league. And I don't, I, I can't, I, I can't say that I was traumatized. I was demoralized, I think, is what it was. How did uh, the experience affect your career aspirations and ambitions? I can't probably say that there's a direct line between that, that experience with Harvey Weinstein and my, um, my research on the sexual objectification and sexualization of girls and women. But there certainly is a dotted line. Uh, these were the kinds of experiences that accumulated for me. You know, that wasn't the only time a man presented himself to me in a, in an aggressive way, uh, seeking something from me. It wasn't the only time my physical appearance was commented upon in a context when I would have rather been recognized for my competence. And that began to interest me. I, I returned to Smith. I majored in psychology. I went on to earn my PhD from Stanford. And I began to study what the consequences are to girls and women of living in a culture that routinely treats us as though our sexualized bodies are the most valuable thing we have to offer. And Tomian, you know, did you, do you think that the experience affected uh, your interest in acting in the world of Hollywood? Oh, absolutely. I, I just, I, I really kind of threw that aspiration in the wastebasket. I have to say, I, I thought I, at the time, I thought, as I said earlier, that this was just something I wasn't cool enough to be able to participate in. Oh, looking back, I can't, I can't believe that. What I do think, I do think that there was a whisper inside of me, some sort of feminist whisper that said, get out now. Um, but I, at the time, I think what I thought was, okay, well, that was a learning experience, and I am going to not pursue acting. Catherine, I'd like to hear your story next. Uh, can you describe how and when you met Harvey Weinstein and what happened? Yes. Um, so I was in my early 20s, and I had um, my agent set up a meeting, a general meeting with Miramax, and I went to Tribeca and met with the people at Miramax, and Harvey was the guy I met with. And uh, I remember there were other people there, women. He had a, a, one woman in particular that was his assistant, his primary assistant. And in the actual office, I felt very safe and like I was doing the right thing. And the meeting went really well, and he gave me two scripts to read. And you know, Miramax was, it was the early 90s, but they were doing interesting independent movies. And he made me feel like I was a fit there. And I had been spending the year auditioning. You know, I maybe got two guest spots or something. And the rest of the year was just auditioning. And here he was giving me this sort of validation, like, you're on the right track. Keep on. And at that point in my life, I needed to hear that because you know, sometimes listening to her story, I think, God, I wish I'd taken a hard left and gone and studied psychology, <laughs> you know, and done something more constructive. Um, and I say that only because I think what happened was I, I did put so much hard work into acting. And after my, this incident, it was a profound incident for me. And in, it did affect the way I looked at my career. And there was, I think it pushed me back a lot. I stayed in it, but I had a conflict now. Mm 
mm-hmm. that I was living with that made it much harder to pursue with the same zest and purity that I had once, you know, started with. But my story goes that as I left the office that day, on my way to the elevator, Harvey stopped me and he said, well, welcome to the Miramax family. And he used the word family to make, you know, making me feel very sort of included and cozy. Mm -hmm. And now you can come to screenings and all kinds of things and meet people. And I really felt like he was going to be a mentor. And he said, in fact, there's a movie this afternoon. Are you available? And I said, oh, yeah. He said, okay, I'll have my car come pick you up. He did. We ended up going to a movie, the movie Red Rock West. Mm -hmm. And it was a Miramax movie, but we were just going to the theater on the Upper West Side. (laughs) (laughs) Just like paying for tickets, popcorn in the lobby. yeah. Yeah. With like 10 other people in the theater. And I sat there. I was mortified. And already had the sort of sinking feeling that I'd been had, of course. And afterwards, I had to sort of orient myself and find my way to a subway stop and see how I was going to get home. And, you know, he had a car pick me up. It was all kind of strange. And he said, well, my apartment's right here. Um, Will you come up for one second? And I thought, no, I'll just wait down here. And he said, just come up for one second. And he negotiated with me to sort of get me to come up to his apartment. And I thought, I didn't feel right about it. But then I thought, he he's married. I know he's married. He's talked about his wife. Um, he's too visible to do anything. Right. You know? Um, but I'm still uncomfortable, but I, I'm surely going to get out of it. Um, we went upstairs. He made himself a drink. He was sort of inviting me to relax. We talked about art movies, politics. And now I started feeling like, oh, okay, the meeting's back on. Like, it's now it's he's getting to know me even more, you know. Um, and seemed interested in what you had to say. Yeah, and I felt validated. And, um, yeah, respected, like, and as an artist. And so, I, again, and maybe even safe, which is the strange part. And then he went to the bathroom and he came back with the first time he came back with the robe on and he asked me for a massage. And that was just already, that was just, I couldn't believe that it went into that place. I don't know why, again, like looking back, like why was that so strange? But it was just so awkward for me. I was young. He was much older than me at that time. It really felt different, the age difference. Um, And it was also just the, touching like wanting him me to touch him was just so it ruined suddenly the whole conversation everything was definitely off now and i knew what it was about and now i was just having to get out of there what did you say when he came out in the room well i said no i'm not comfortable he's like well everybody does it and i said well i'm just not that person sorry and i apologized you know and so then he went back and i thought he was going to get dressed but then he came back and he came back fully naked. And that was when I went from just sort of shock to sort of adrenaline rush shock. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling very much like, um, I mean, distinctly feeling like, is, is, this, this, is this the moment that that happens to me? Like, it makes me emotional to think about yeah. it. But, um, but like, is it going to happen? Is that going to happen to me right now? I don't even want to say the word, but I was so scared. Um, he's so big, and I'm—I mean, he's he a big guy. Yeah. And he was between me and the door, and so then it became this sort of back and forth of, like, well, just let me kiss you. Well, just let me touch you. Well, just give me a massage. Well, just lift up your shirt and let me see your breasts. Um, and I—and I got mad. And I said, you know, I can't believe you're doing this to me. And I told him, and I mean, I did a good job of, I think, sticking up for myself because over my dead body, was he going to, you know, have his way with me? And I knew that. Like, I was really, I thought that's kind of strength that you feel like when they talk about women 
that move cars for their children or something. I was like, no, no, just no. Right. But um, it was a long negotiating process to get out of his apartment. And um, I finally got out. He said, I'll let you leave if if you let me just get dressed. I'll take you in a cab myself. And I agreed to that, I think, because I felt like I should play nice the whole way. I think that that was the safest way to go. Um, and then he took me in a taxi and... I got out at a bar downtown on the Lower West Side, and I just went into the bar, and I, I went right up to the bartender, and I said, just, can you please talk to me like you know me and like you're supposed to be meeting me here? Because he, because Harvey was in the taxi, and he was looking at me through the window of the taxi for like a good 20 minutes. Just The taxi was just still. Just waiting outside just the bar? staring. Staring me down. That's so frightening. It was really, it was so weird. It was so, it was so frightening and so eerie. And there was this, I mean, I knew that he knew he had done something wrong. And was he trying to manage it? Was he trying to threaten me? I, what, I, you know, there was a lot of levels to him that I saw within this event. There was a little boy come on, just let me see your breasts. I mean, you know, this, and then there was this like, come on, come on, you know, like bully mm -hmm. and real tough, mean guy. I mean, it's it was very, it was a, a, a lot of levels of, you know. And asking to see you out and drop you off almost seems like a attempt to assert normalcy. Like we've just had a normal day together and Un I'm just dropping you off. A hundred percent. Yeah. Other than... I mean, I was shaking the whole time in yeah. the car and the whole time at the bar. But I knew that I had to play along almost to get to my free spot. Yeah. You described it as you were um, beginning to tell the story, how it left you feeling like you had a conflict in pursuing your career after that. Describe a little bit more what that conflict was. Well, I just remember the next day thinking I talked to my mom about it. Obviously, I, you know, I kind of cried on her shoulder. And there was this kind of conversation about, well, what can you do? And it felt like, on my part, I just remember thinking, well, I can't do anything. I mean, there's no, I can't go up against this guy. He he is Hollywood. Even then, even then I knew who he was and who he was going to become. Mm -hmm. And I'm nobody. Um, who's going to believe me? Who's going to care? If I go up against him, he will snuff me out so fast. If I don't go up against him, either way, I'm living now with the new knowledge that there's only a few things people care about in Hollywood. Money, sex, and the movies. They don't care about you. It doesn't matter. So unless you can play that tough then maybe this isn't for you. And if sex is, is how you're supposed to, is the currency that you're supposed to use, I can't do it. I'm not made for it. And I spent all this money and time in acting school, and now I know I'm not made for this. All that being said, I just want to say, I know there are actresses who got through without doing that. Come on. You know, I mean, there, there are plenty of strong and talented people beautiful women who who have made it have made great careers for themselves um so i don't want to say that like that's the only thing that happens in hollywood but there was something about me that knew that day that this was going to be this was going to happen and it, it could happen on such a high level that i just knew i didn't have any fight back that whoever i talked to didn't have the power to do anything about it and or seem to care and that then you see someone like Harvey continue to, to get celebrated over and over again. Yeah, I want to ask all three of you what it was like to watch his ascent uh, over time and, and the duration of it. Um, but before I do, Alice, I'd, I'd love to hear your story, your encounter with um, 
Yes. Harvey was at Cannes in 2002? In 2002 in Cannes. And I think I'd run into him before that time very uh, kind of vaguely, but this, this one stood out. And I want to also say that my encounter was not in any way as harrowing as um, as the two we've, we've just heard. But the reason I wanted to speak was that when I first heard on something like the 6th or 7th of October that people had started to come forward and the New, the New York Times and the New Yorker um, pieces had come out, I was like, finally. And then about three days later, I heard that he was denying it. And I remember feeling so angry because I know at least five or six women who have had horrendous moments with just absolutely horrible times in, in hotel rooms and, and bathrobes. And and although my my experience wasn't that, I knew that the only way to empower the, the women that had come forth already and, and for, for them not to be called liars was for more of us to come forward and say, we know, we know that this man is, is, is an absolute vile creep so my my particular story happened in 2002 I'd been I'd been on a great role as an actress I'd been an actress for about six years I'd met um, in 99 I'd done uh, me and my then boyfriend well I'd met him on the film 102 Dalmatians we were the two young leads in the film and thanks to that we'd had a few really good years both of us working um, he still does have a lot of good years at the moment <laughs> while I'm looking after the kids. But um, we he was in New York. I was in Cannes to promote a film that I'd done the year before. Things were very exciting. Um, he was flying into Cannes a little bit the next day to, to promote a film that he'd done. So, you know, we were very much in love and it was amazing. And so it was my last night on my own in, in the hotel. Um, and I went down to the bar on the beach and I was looking around for somebody I might have known. So I went, stood at the bar. And literally, I turned around and Harvey Weinstein's right next to me. And my first thought was, oh, oh my God, I, I'm going to get to meet Harvey properly. And it's really weird because this, I already knew that I'd heard from three or four, I'd actually met one girl in Paris after she'd come from her meeting with Harvey and seen her shaking. And so, uh, but I, I... It, just like you said, there was this mythical person who had the power to turn you into a, a Gwyneth Paltrow or anybody, whoever you, you, you want to choose. And I was like, oh, my God. And then I was like, I, I don't. And also because of his politics, because of, you know, the, the way he promoted things like Sicko and all these. You know, I don't know if that was before or afterwards, but we all knew that he was a Democrat and so am I. And, and I thought he's intelligent and, and I'd love to talk to him. And I just thought, oh, what am I going to say? I don't know what to say. And he said, and I said, hi. And he said, hi. And I said, I'm Alice. And he said, I know. Which is so very clever. I don't know if he did know or not. And I said, my boyfriend, Johan Griffith, tested for you last night in New York. And he said, I know. And he did an awesome job. And that was just incredible because I was like, wow, he knows us. He knows us. Like, we're just these British actors. And oh, my God, I'm in canon. And I was just, oh, really? Did he really? And I was thinking, I can't wait to tell. I can't wait to tell him. It's going to be amazing. He did an awesome job. He might be getting this big movie. And and then something what you said just then, to, you said about the, the, the bathrobe and the moment when you went, oh, this is going to happen. I, I don't know how it transitioned. I, it was almost like it was an out-of-body experience. All of a sudden he was saying, I want to touch your tit. I want to touch your tits. And we were in this full bar. And it was almost like, no, hold on, this this can't be happening. But it is. And, it, and it's weird because when I was 18, I had a nasty car accident and the car flipped over and we landed on the back. And I remember thinking, oh, this is how I'm going to die. Like, and, the, and, and it was the same feeling. It was like, oh, my God, this is going to happen to me now. And he wanted me to go into a bathroom that was about five feet behind me. And he was moving in on my personal space and he wanted me to go into the bathroom into a cubicle he was going to follow me he was going to touch my breasts and my private parts and it was just going to and I the weird thing is I didn't say what the hell do you think you're talking I, I was saying well you know I, I don't think I should because I've got a I was coming out with ridiculous excuses but as you say you can't quite believe it's happening because and, and it sounds crazy but this is going to sound really awful I thought that I wasn't the sort of girl that people come on to like that because I didn't give that vibe because I'm and I think that's a horrible thing for me to say. But I think that, I, you know, I, I kind of maybe thought that there were girls who 
did give that vibe, but that I didn't. And, and I, I don't, it hasn't happened to me a lot in my life because I think I'm quite clear about where I stand with people. It has happened more times. But I feel kind of stupid for thinking that it would be any different than that. So basically he just inched forward and I inched back and he inched forward and I inched back and then it got to the point where it was very clear I was going to escape and run. And as I was run- as I was escaping, he was like, whatever, I hope your career goes well and I hope your boyfriend's career goes well. And two days later we got the news that he, my then boyfriend and now husband, had not got the role. And I, my, my mother had just passed away. <laughs> My father had just remarried. I was a little bit lost. I didn't have anybody to talk to. I, I confided in somebody, and my husband doesn't want me to tell this but this part, but somebody who was related to the team of people that were working for him, that was part of that. And I said, this thing happened, and I'm I'm so sorry, and I don't know if it had anything to do with... And he was like, did you have to mention Johan's name? And I remember thinking, oh, shit, that's my... I should, as if to say... Well, you know, you didn't have to bring our client into this. And look, I don't blame him and I'm not trying to witch hunt him. But the weird thing was is that for many years, all I could think of was why did I say boyfriend? Why didn't I? Like it? And, you know, Johan never was called for Miramax and neither was I. Well, I don't want to interrupt, but I know why you said your boyfriend. I, I mean, know, of yes. course you said because my boyfriend. You were I was making yourself safe immediately. Yeah, you know what? You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You were legitimizing yourself as an actor and your boyfriend too. And you were trying to meet Harvey in a business way. Yeah. Which I is thought. what you're supposed to do when you're an actor. Yeah. You know, we don't have I I, I was not gonna say this, but I will say this. <laughs> Actors we can't like pick up our guitar and just play in our living room. We are completely dependent on someone to hire us. Yeah. Yeah. You're not gonna go do a monologue in your bedroom. Yeah. You know, you you, right, ha- you can't we, busk on the subway. No, you can't. You can't pick up a paintbrush and paint in your room, which I do all the time for therapy. I might be yeah. terrible, but I get to do it. You can't write in the, you can't, exactly. We uh, we absolutely are dependent on someone to hire right. us and then somebody not to edit, right. edit us out at right. the end. But yeah. And that, you might have helped your boyfriend get the job that night had you had a certain conversation with him and it had gone and a certain way. I think way. one is constantly thinking that one, one, that's the way that we do think in Hollywood is like, you know, that. Exactly, exactly that. So I think it was a combination of the two, you know, oh my God. And, and not just in Hollywood, everywhere. People like to work with people they like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everywhere. And so if you make a connection with this man and he likes you and then finds out you have an interest in the similar and then it might make him give Johan the job. That's yeah. why you brought his name yeah, up. Yeah, it, it is. It I is. think, I mean... What was crazy was I spent that was when the person said, "Well, you could have just." He, the person didn't even say like, "I'm sorry, are you okay?" The person said, you, "You, I'm, I'm really angry with you for bringing up his name." I was like, "Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm sorry about that." <laughs> well, it's like the thing that, in, you know, she was saying in the beginning about shame. Yeah, I think all of us. She's saying she felt shame the first. Yeah, that I'm struck by in each shame. of your accounts. Uh, I mean, Tommy Ann, you described this too. Each of you described your story and then you described a second layer where you were looking back and critiquing your own actions. I mean, you each yeah. had sort of built in, I, 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 I was too apologetic, I was too this. It's, it's striking. I mean, I don't know, T- Tommy Ann, what your response is to hearing these other stories. I just, I'm, I'm just so... First of all, when Alice starts by saying, you know, my my encounter wasn't nearly as harrowing, already here you are apologizing <laughs> at the exactly. table exactly. of women who all, you know, presented with, uh, you know, this moment in time. And, and Catherine talked about it and so did Alice. There's this moment where you go, oh, hell. Uh-huh. Here comes right, and so I think you mentioned your boyfriend also as a way of saying, "Here's a boundary." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to name the fact that I have a boyfriend, and then you 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 now now the room starts spinning, and you think, "What are the rules here?" Exactly, and and then all of a sudden you realize here what here's what the rules are. The rules are simply because you are female you are violatable. I'm going to violate your boundaries anyway. You can try to put some up, but here I come. Yeah. 
And, and can, can I say something really interesting, interesting there? I was I was talking to my husband um, about this, this today, and because you know it's come up, the accusation with Al Franken has come up today, which is is a little different, I think, to some of the ones that we've been hearing about Roy Moore. And I'm sure you have questions relating to that, maybe if we have time or whatever. But but my husband said I'm terrified. And I said, Why are you terrified? He said, Well, if if this person, if Al Franken's being accused because tried to kiss this woman and put his tongue he said that's happened to me before I, i've got the wrong end of the stick and i've and i said to him you don't understand for me there are two completely separate types of men there are the ones that maybe try and get the wrong end and actually i've tried with men and got the wrong end and they've said no and i've gone i'm terribly sorry i feel embarrassed and then there are the ones that you say no and you realize they're not going to stop and and I was trying to explain to my husband how completely different those two types of men were and how, as, as far as I was concerned, that, that they weren't going to get mixed up. But then I realized that it was, it was, it was terrifying. It was going to be at the moment. There are a lot of men thinking of that drunken time they had when they were 23 when they got the wrong end of the stick. And where does that leave us on? You mean like a past gone awry? I was thinking a lot about this and I don't know what Tommy Ann thinks, but. I'd like to know since he's a psychologist, but yeah. I, I, um, I know for me, like my body had a very different reaction in this situation with Harvey than it has yes. with a man that made a pass at me that yes. I didn't want him to make exactly a pass at me. Exactly what I was trying to say. This, my, I had an out of body experience uh -huh. with Harvey and I was shaking like uh -huh. a leaf. I think my adrenaline was through the roof. Um, I have, two or three situations where I saw him afterwards over mm -hmm. the years. One of them, a friend of mine said to me the other night, oh, you know, Catherine, we went to the premiere of The English Patient together and you threw up in the car on the way home. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my now God. I know why. Oh, Jesus. Totally blocked that out. Wow. I don't remember that at all. So, you know, I don't know if you yeah. do that over like a pass gone awry yeah. or... Well, it's about... It seems like it's about whether the person making the pass is actually curious about your answer, right? Like whether it's yes. whether they're it's a, whether exactly. it's sort of a hey, are we in the same place? And they're concerned about where you are, exactly, and, yes. and will respect it if you're not. But well, what Jan right, was yeah. worried about was that somehow the, the two overlapped. And what I was trying to explain, and I've had maybe four or five Harvey type encounters in my life. One with a famous rock star in a hotel room, which was a similar thing where I tried to get out the door and he slammed the door on me so I couldn't leave and then I ran out shaking. Mm. It's so different. It's it's literally, I'm going to get raped now. Whereas the, the past gone awry thing, you, the, the man feels embarrassed and, and you both feel embarrassed. And, and it's, I was trying to explain to him how different they were. And, right. and it's, I think right. it's, it's hard well, to Well, one takes you in, like you said, one is checking in with looping with, you yes. in and one is mm -hmm. just like, you're not. There, you're not a person. A pass mm -hmm. is a question, yes. and it's seeking an answer from another actual human being. Right, Damian. I'm curious um, whether you knew about Weinstein's rep reputation since you, you know, didn't continue to to pursue a Hollywood career. Alice, you mentioned that you'd heard people who'd had stories mm -hmm. even before you encountered him. Um, and I'm curious, Catherine, to hear about the the Whisper Networks and how much you'd learned about them too. But Tommy, and were you, you know, you I think you've described in some interviews sitting at Oscar parties and and kind of occasionally at ones where you felt like you were with the right crowd, sharing a little bit of what had happened to you. But d did you know that Weinstein had this reputation? That that did you know that you weren't alone? No, no. I mean, I I just knew that I had. I would ask, you know, is this a Miramax movie? I remember The English Patient so well. I remember. I, I, It's so crazy that you say this thing that you threw up and you don't remember it, but I remember being sick in that movie. Wow. That's so <laughs> It's so strange wow. that you're saying that. I didn't remember. My friend just told me the other night. He took me to dinner and he said, do you remember? And I was like, what? No. He yes, goes, Catherine, you barfed in the car. <laughs> wow. So you, well, no, you were sick I watching it? I, I, I. I think that, you know, all of those movies, Goodwill Hunting, you know, they became just sort of sickening. Yeah, no, I feel exactly uh, the same. Yeah. They became, yeah. you know, I, it would be an ordeal for me to get through them. And I would Your think, person. of course, you know, this is a wonderful movie. Uh, but and then you leave the theater and you're talking with your friends and everyone's saying what an amazing movie it was. And there's something 
rotten. Mm, I know the feeling so well. And then everybody was saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, every time they got an Oscar to Harvey. And then to hear Kate Winslet recently saying that she was told to say thank you to him and she deliberately didn't. And now realizing that I was thinking, oh, there go all the people that managed to finesse their relationship with Harvey Weinstein. Um, I mean, there's been so much conversation both with Weinstein and then with the many men, almost too many to name, about whom allegations have come out in the last month. And there's been a lot of di- dissecting of these public apologies, and Harvey mm. Weinstein's was certainly among the least effective mm. documents we've seen. Uh, a lot of people spent time last week picking apart the apology of Louis C.K. and wondering whether uh, you know it was good enough or not good enough. But uh, obviously, a lot of those commentators are just people, people who know the work, people who've seen The English Patient, people who watched Louis. Mm. I'm curious for you guys whether what you would want out of an apology, whether any apology could be satisfying. I, I mean, I, I don't personally think much of apologies. I don't, I, I've, I've asked myself in many situations in life what I think about apologies and I just don't, I think if somebody's done something that is, is neglectful or or was done because they drank too much alcohol or they had a silly thought and they apologize, it's fine. But I think for certain things, I I don't think any, I just don't think that apologies for me as a person who the who's the injured party. I don't know about how you you two feel because I feel that you two really it was it was a different level of 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 attack that happened to you two. I don't know how I feel um, because I am in in general sort of like a very forgiving person. And I don't know if that has to do with me being a nice girl um, or just an empathetic person that wants to believe that people can change and that we're all born sort of pure. And, you know, I know that most abusers were abused. Mm. Um, I mean, I think I would like to hear what our psychologist on the panel has to say about that, but everything I've read does suggest that, right? And I think that's a really interesting, important part of this. If See, we're going to correct, I, I, I used to. I, it's I not like that I, you too. Right. I used to feel very, and I used to forgive people in general for things they'd done to me. Right. And then I had some horrendous things happen with relationships in my extended family, and and people did some really awful things to me, and I suddenly realized that. I don't really need to forgive everybody. And, it, and, and if somebody thinks I'm a horrible person for that, then so be it. But right. I've never in my life knowingly hurt any, another human being. And I, I hopefully never will deliberately. Right. And, I understand and what you're saying. In, if, if I have to forgive somebody for something when in my heart mm-hmm. I'm still bleeding, mm-hmm. then, there's, then, it, then, then I'm not in the right state of mind to continue the relationship with them anyway. Right. I think there are a, lo- there are a number of layers there. I, you know, we... There's there's research on apologies. There's research on forgiveness. And I will say that, you know, we've all been subjected to an apology that really felt <laughs> nothing like an, an apology. Right. Yes. And so here's the thing. When when someone apologizes for our having been hurt, mm. what they're saying is, I'm sorry you felt that way. Mm. Right. And yeah. that is not at all an apology. An apology is about actually acknowledging the harm that your own action or inaction made happen. Right. And that is a very, that's something that's quite hard to come by in Mm. any kind of public forum. We American rhetoric, there's, there's no room for that. You never hear a politician do it properly. You never hear anybody do it properly in our own intimate relationships. Mm. We can get in fights with the person we love the most. And we're so mortified that we've hurt them. That we, we, we just, we cling fiercely and we say, but I didn't mean to, but mm. I didn't mean to, right? But then it turns out that our partner says to us, nevertheless, you did. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then we finally have to say, I am sorry, right? But that is, that's rare. And I think, I think it's, I don't, I don't see very many genuine apologies in, you know, among these many, many now men who've, who've been named as, serial harassers or abusers. But then I think the second thing is so interesting. Forgiveness is such a puzzling phenomenon. It is. We know, we know that clinically forgiveness is a 
powerful, powerful uh, uh, source of rehabilitation in oneself. For the forgiver or, or for the forgiven? For the forgiver. And here's the trick. There are some conditions under which the forgiven doesn't even need to goddamn know. Mm. Wow. Why should they know? You can go through the process with your therapist, with your loved one, of finding a way to let go of the, the, the bond that exists between your powerful negative emotions and this event, right? And you can do that through forgiveness. But the person who harmed you doesn't ever need to know. Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Whereas yeah. some people think of forgiveness as something that you do to the per the person needs to be told that they've that, that that they can forgive somebody else and therefore they feel sort of vindicated. Mm -hmm. It's it's more about the person doing it it's and about, getting rid of it. It's the, about the damage that the rumination is causing in you. And if and so I think the for me, the power of forgiveness is all in it's in between your own ears, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And there are going to be some occasions where you will get a tremendous amount of healing by engaging in that process, but, you know, never letting the harm doer even know. Mm -hmm. wow. I'm, um, I'm curious just to know what it's been like for the three of you the last month. Um, I mean, particularly, you know, Catherine and Tomi and you were in, I think that second New York times story, um, right in that first week of revelations, sharing these things that you'd only discussed with a few people for years even decades you know and uh, what has it been like to a see so many other women come forward about harvey weinstein and b to be part of uh, a set of people who i think are very brave who seem to have triggered a massive cultural watershed moment or at least uh we'll see we'll see what kind of change results from it over time i'm curious to ask you guys about that too but um just what is, what's the last month been like for you, Catherine? Um, it's been wild. I, I want to, I'm so touched and grateful to have met the women. Um, th even though I wish that it had never happened to them, I feel so close to you all. And it helps my healing. It, it really helps because I felt, I think the loneliness of feeling like it's just me makes the the trauma of it worse. And I think that when you realize other people have been hurting too, and you're not the only freak that's hurting, that there's some something really healing about that. Um, and I'm also flabbergasted by how many women, I mean, like maybe every single person I know, every single woman I know is a me too. Mm. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't know that that would be the case. Tommy Ann, what's it been like for you? Oh gosh, well, it's been everything Catherine just said, absolutely. But I think also I wasn't prepared for the kind of re-traumatization that that would come from. I, I ended up having to make an outgoing message in my email that said. Um, I have already told my story. And if that's all you want are the salacious details of that story. Yes. Don't contact me. Exactly. I will, yeah. I'm happy to talk about <laughs> the larger issues because we will not be quiet anymore. That is exactly why I, I wanted to do this this piece and not uh, almost every other single offer I've had is because they wanted. Yeah. Can we do a piece with Alice where she recounts to camera the anecdotes and so and then you know that's just going to be the loop that will be just played again yeah. and again. Yeah, and and, and it is re-traumatizing. Yeah, whereas for me it's much more important about what we're going to do, what we where we think this is going to go, what we think this means on on a larger scale. And and most of the channels I've had coming to me have, channel, you know, the outlets have wanted to, to hear the whole anecdote. Mm -hmm. I don't know why mm -hmm. they would want to hear it when I wrote a piece in the Telegraph and I've been, I've told it on various different. Yeah. But, but yeah, exactly. With, same with me, yeah. Tommy Ann. Yeah, I think in my case too, you know, I, I'm sure people who are very, very, they're very competent, they're very good at their job, but they know deep down that they got the job because their uncle was a friend of the CEO. And right now, this has turned out to be this 
this ironic, this sort of strange platform for me to talk about my career's worth of research on these issues. And so then I think, oh, God, did it take having to tell the story to be able to? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's such an interesting place that you just took it for yourself. Because because I see it as um, I think that we've been bursting to talk about this for our whole lives. I mean, Mm. come on. This is not. It's just, I mean. We just got to vote. I mean, you know, I mean, this isn't like, yeah, I mean, we're not, as women, come on, the way where we are right now in society, there, we have been brimming, is it right there at the tipping point? And this is the moment you've been studying this, I think, because it's been an issue your whole life. And it's now, mm-hmm. luckily, in this lifetime, we get to see people wanting to talk about it. I never thought we would. I don't know if you did, but when I first talked to Jody Cantor from the New York Times, I was like, wait, this is a story? Yeah. You 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 yeah. think this is a story? I minimized it so much that I was I just thought, I what? Like someone you 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 care about me? Yeah. No. Right now? Yes, exactly. Are you serious? This can't be. Tell me in. Yeah, I I I was meant to be grading exams and I saw the first New York Times piece, Ashley Judd Mm -hmm. um, and others. And I, I set my exams aside and I wrote an email to Jody Cantor and I sent it on to my mother and my adult daughters because I said, surely Jody Cantor won't read this email or certainly she won't care about my story. I'm a 54 year old college professor. My God. And when the next morning she was on my voicemail, she called me. It's the same thing you're saying, Catherine. This is a story. Mm-hmm. You, you, you care about mine. One thing that's been striking about these stories and some others that have come out is just there's no. It's not a corporation. There's not an HR department that you can call right. now. As we're also learning that HR the, departments don't always handle everything well either. No. But kind of the fluidity of uh, work in this industry, the fact that you're sort of setting up a new summer camp with every project and then going to the mm. winds seem like they contribute to some of, of these dynamics. Um, what steps do you think should be taken to prevent behavior like this from affecting the careers of, of women entering the industry? I don't think, it, I, I don't think you can, I don't think you can take steps as do you mean as far as legislation or, or, or um I don't or, know. Or, I, I feel like to it's very simple to me. It's it's not necessarily about men, women, it's about bullying. Mm-hmm. And I was bullied a lot as a child and my mother was a was a very one of those very she she felt that she was very sort of inspired and um and empathetic and she used to say, Well, just think about what you might have done to them and um she said, You know, the best thing to do is take the high road. Sorry fuck the high road I, I shouldn't but I, you can swear on this podcast okay well fuck the high road because <laughs> I tried for years and years to take the high road and I tried ignoring them and I'm doing little quote marks with my fingers there because they just threw more ice lollies at my back and shouted things like slut which was the word that everybody was called for some reason in England back in the 70s and 80s and I had a horrible time and it wasn't until I was about 14 and there was there was a girl that used to used to meet me every night after school, and she used to say, "I'm going to beat you up, but not tonight." She said, "Another night." Ugh. So I would walk around with this terror, and then finally she said one day the same thing: "I'm going to beat you up, but not tonight, tomorrow." And I just said, "Just do it, just do it." And she punched me in the face, and 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 I just looked round at her, and I just punched her back in the face, and then. Something took over me and I grabbed hold of her hair and I started repeatedly punching her back in the face. And we were having, I went to quite a rough school, I have to say, um, but but we were having this full-on fight and it was a massive changing point for me. And I realized that, that, that you cannot ignore a bully. And interestingly, my daughter, who's now eight, in preschool started being bullied in exactly the same way that I was. And I turned around to my daughter and I said, no, if somebody says something to you, anything, you have to say something back to them. And if somebody pushes you, you have to push them back. I don't care if that gets you into trouble because I know from years and years that it doesn't get better if you appease somebody. It really doesn't. I think that's it, it, I, psychological. That, that, that's, is that, is that, does that make any sense to you, um, Tommy Ann, the, the, 
the idea that we should appease people and take the high road and being the being the wrong answer well but i think there's so many layers there as we know uh, uh, what what did we each do to try to get out of our bullying encounter? We were very polite yeah. and we appeased this gigantic man because we didn't want to poke the bear, right? So mm-hmm. I think you have to equip your child with the you know with the wherewithal to understand that you know if you're at school and you have your teachers as witnesses, then you say right back to that bully, "Do not speak to me that way," right? Yeah. But you also have to allow for. And, and I wish we've heard from more women who ended up having to do the thing mm-hmm. to get out of the room. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't I, feel yes, like a yeah. hero. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like a hero that I, you know, left relatively unscathed. I think for a lot of women, the only way out of the room mm-hmm. is to Yes, well, well, no well Natasha Henstridge just beautifully spoke on the on the Today Show yesterday with, about Brett Ratner. She had encounters with Harvey Weinstein and Brett Ratner, mm-hmm. and the Brett Ratner one really, really, really upset her, and mm-hmm. she, and she had to go through with the act because he because mm-hmm. he wouldn't let her out of the room. Mm-hmm. And and I I, I I I know I've known Natasha for a long time. I didn't know this about her, and I I teared up watching her mm-hmm. talk, mm-hmm. just but thinking that's about. Great. Thank you. Right, we all get to sort of have people feel as though, you know, we, we were heroic because we, we didn't go along with it. But in some cases, my God, it's the only way you're going to save yourself. Absolutely. And we need to hear from those people too. I, I was going to say, if we are trying to talk about solutions, (laughs) this is something so pie in the sky, but I, I was thinking, you know, in the music, in the world of music, in the world of the symphony, orchestra, et cetera, um, the people audition behind a screen. You are now judging their talent purely and solely by the sound that comes from their instrument, right? right. And that was, wow. the way, that was the way that that industry managed to address things like racism and sexism. We don't see who the player is. We simply hear the music, right? Why can't... Why can't we do something similar in Hollywood? Why can't we allow for people's talent to be the thing, right? There's digitizing. There's all kinds of ways we could make it so that we don't see the sexualized body and appearance of the person playing the audition. Except for perhaps the fact that we're, we're dealing with the visual image and that, that sometimes the visual image is a sexual one, possibly, well, or a charismatic one, then there would be the yeah, argument charisma that... Charisma and sexuality are, are confusing <coughs> yeah. things, absolutely right? right. And, I'm, and, and you talk about your sweet, beautiful daughter already being bullied and you mm. yourself being bullied, Alice. And, but of course, if you're female, the bullying will be sexualized. You will be called a slut. Mm. Yes, that that's so interesting. So, I didn't think so of that. So I just thought it must have been the word of the time because I hadn't done no, anything no. with any boys by that point. I mean, I, of course, <laughs> of course, that is the way to wow. bully a girl. That is the way Harvey Weinstein bullied us. Wow. Wow. The last question I wanted to ask you guys, um, and you've done some of this already, which has been great, but um, is really just what you want to know from the other women who've been through this. And, and we'll start here with each other. But Tomian, I'm curious what, what you want to ask that you haven't had a chance to ask yet. I think I've, I've already been able to feel such a community, as Catherine, I think, also said, to, to, to confess to you all that I felt ashamed is so relieving because it helps me the, for, the biggest forgiveness here is to my own self, mm. right? I have to forgive my 20 year old self for thinking that the only reason I didn't go along with this was because I was a chicken or a prude or something. Um, and so I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if you have found ways to forgive yourself, yourselves. <sighs> I find it very hard to forgive myself about anything. It's hard, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard. I feel I had a, a couple moments of feeling very loving towards my 23-year-old self, 24-year-old self. Like like if like I want to say hey, hey girl, you know, like if, if if you could see me now, if you could see what's happening now. 
you know. Um, yeah, I'm glad that I'm glad that that girl got to grow up and be this girl. And I think one thing that that comes to mind for me, and, and I saw this a lot on some of the negative comments in Twitter, were there was one person that went into a fight, and I had suddenly had about ten people, amazing people, defending me, who said, um, "You wanted the bright life. You wanted to be a famous star. You wanted to be rich and famous. Ha! You should have chosen a normal job like everybody else." And I thought it was interesting because I think that in myself, I've always felt guilty because. Maybe I was brought up not to want to choose a job that that was sort of vain and mm. and and self-aggrandizing, perhaps if one succeeded, and that somehow these people had now caught me out because, and I think especially in England, we, we, we're not little kids aren't taught that they can be president, not just because we don't have a president, but but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but because it, it's you're supposed to pretend that you don't want to achieve anything you know success isn't is not is, is success is not is not a quality in in England you're supposed to say well no of course I don't want that and all of us and, and I had a hard time coming out to myself that I did want to go into this business and everybody mm -hmm. sort of they, they they always love to nuance it well of course for me the theater and of course for me it's always about you know it's an ensemble thing and it's not you know most people are show-offs that want to go into acting and all of a sudden these people were coming out and saying well you see you see, well, if you wanted to go into that, then you, you, you deserve whatever you get. Yeah. And I think, mm. no, no, actually, no, because this this is my job. And and this is what everything I've ever done in my life, everything we have, our lovely house with our lovely pool, our lovely kids, is paid for by acting. Therefore, it's a legitimate job that we're doing. And therefore, the, that's why I was scared was because because we, because we that we don't have any other skills. You know, unless I want to go back on my French and Italian degree from like 100 years ago, which I mean, I can still speak them, but I'm not sure anybody wants a French to English translator. Like, hello. But um, so so we we have made a living from acting and it is viable and it's OK to want to be an actor. And, and people that are growing up now should should be allowed to know that, you know, you can want to be famous. That's not that's that, that that's and not successful and successful yes. or, or, yeah. or to earn money. And you can want to be in the spotlight. And that doesn't mean that then if things go like this wrong, you have to accept. Right. The, and the, storytelling is a healing art. Yes. Whether and, and you're the, behind the mic. Yes. Or, you know, and an art that's been, been around for ever and ever right. and ever. And, right. And and yes, we need storytelling in our mm -hmm. culture. It helps heal us. Yes. Yeah. And so there's no reason to diminish it. And no. some characters in movies are sexy, yeah. you know, yeah. and they shouldn't be you know, <laughs> yeah. subject to being raped because of it, <laughs> you know. I um, thought you were right. yeah. I thought you were going to say some, they should, some characters shouldn't be because sometimes I'll go up and it says, um, you're going up for Amber and she's 39 and she's got four different degrees, but she touts a gun and she's also knows how to take out a brain oh, and, you know, and she's incredibly sexy and always wears her hair down. And I'm just like, oh, that one again. Yeah, I can do that one easy. Yeah. <laughs> the, the other thing that has struck me over all of these stories is, my God, we're resilient. Hey, <sighs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We shouldn't have to endure these these things, but we do. Yeah. Yeah. Every single and woman. some people endure a lot worse and have endured yes. a lot worse, yeah. and they, and they they don't have a platform. Yes. Yeah, they don't. And that's why we need to we need to use our platform. That's why there's something more needs to happen from this. Yeah. That's why there needs that's to why be I a next don't want a to next stop step. Yeah. You know, for other people's voices to be heard, mm -hmm. people that don't have a platform. Yep. Thank you all so much <laughs> for sharing your time and your stories with us today. It's been a real privilege talking to all three of you. Uh, thank you, Tommy Ann. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to meet all of you. Thank you, Catherine. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks, Alice. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. It's been like a therapy session for me. You've been listening to a special Slate podcast with three women who have accused Harvey Weinstein of sexual harassment. You heard from Tommy Ann Roberts, Catherine Kendall, and Alice Evans. One note, Evans mentioned some allegations against Brett Ratner. Ratner's lawyer has categorically disputed the allegations against him from actress Natasha Henstridge and several others, including more women whose accounts were published since this conversation was recorded. You can read a transcript of this interview at Slate.com. I'm Julia Turner. Thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.